Well, this morning we have the wonderful opportunity to welcome back to the pulpit of Christ Church our dear friend, the Reverend Dr. Wayne Gordon, founding pastor. I love that. I love that when you do that. In over 37 years of ministry, Coach, as he is affectionately known, has served as the pastor of Lawndale in addition to playing a key role in countless community development initiatives. For example, he is one of the founders of the Lawndale Christian Health Center, a healthcare ministry with four sites, a staff of over 300, and a ministry that serves over 150,000 patients per year. Coach also helped to formulate what is known today as the CCDA, which is a nationwide ministry organization that supports 1,000 organizational members and 10,000 individual members, all of whom engage in Christian community development throughout the country and beyond. Wayne currently serves as the chairman of the board of that vital ministry. He is a graduate of Wheaton College, Northern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he has a degree in, his doctoral degree from Eastern Baptist. Wayne and Anne have three adult children, Angela, Andrew, and Austin, and a wealth of friends and colleagues throughout the country and beyond. Christ Church has been in a vital ministry partnership with Lawndale for 30 years and counting. And we hope and pray that our relationship will continue to thrive in the years ahead. For more than 35 years of his life, Wayne Gordon has exemplified breaking down all racial barriers to pave the way for God's truth in the lives of all that he encounters. And as he comes forward, you'll see that he's a fairly shy individual. So you'll have to encourage him. Let's welcome our friend Wayne Gordon. When John was talking, I thought he was saying, we're glad that uh, Coach is here today, but we're even more glad that the choir's here. Yeah. That's what you should have said. 7.45, one early Monday morning, I walked into my classroom at Farragut High School. I inherited a new class. Second semester. Hey, Coach. How you doing? Inherited a new class, and the... They had assigned seating. And in the very front row, there was a seat, and it was empty. And I thought, wow, then, you know, this guy's not here. So I, a couple days go by, two or three days go by, and as they go by, the seat continues to be empty. After about the third or fourth day of being empty, I finally picked up the phone, and I called the number that was in the grade book. And when I called it, it said that the phone had been disconnected, and I didn't get him. Then I looked in the grade book and got his address, wrote him a little note, sent the note out and said, hey, you know, you're, you're, you're not coming to class. You can't pass if you don't come to class. The letter came back, address unknown. It was the wrong address. After, after uh, about two weeks, I finally got just a little bit creative and I said, hey, to my students, does anybody know anything about this young man that sits here in the front row? And they said, coach, yeah, that's Top Cat. I said, well, does anybody know anything about Top Cat? They said, yeah. I said, does Top Cat ever come to school? They said, yeah, he always comes to school, but he works the gas station up there on 16th and Christiana, and he doesn't make it until mid-morning, division time. So I said, well, I don't even know what he looks like. If you see Top Cat, will you introduce him to me? Because he's failing our class. 
That afternoon as I was walking through the halls of Farragut High School, all of a sudden I heard some of my students saying, Top Cat, come here, Top Cat. And when they said that, I said, oh, wow, Top Cat. And then I heard them say, Mr. Gordon, come here. And they said, oh, hey, Top Cat, hey, how you doing? I'm Mr. Gordon, I'm your first period teacher, and you're failing my class, all right? And they said, he said, whoa. He said, I said, but you know what? I know you can pass my class, but you got to come to class. If you don't come to class, you're going to fail. Top Cat looked at me, looked at me, and you know what? He said, Mr. Gordon, I'll be there tomorrow. Well, Top Cat was a man of his word. The next morning when I walked into the classroom, 745, that empty seat in the front was not empty. Top Cat was there. Now, if you're a teacher, you'll know what I'm talking about. Top Cat is one of those students you just hope you get to teach. Top Cat went from failing to a D, to a C, to a B, to becoming a straight A student. Top Cat became my prized student in my classroom. Never tardy, never miss class. After about four months, I walked into the classroom one morning at 7.45. The seat was empty for the first time in four months. 746, 47, 48, by 7.50, I couldn't wait anymore. And I finally said, hey, to the class, Top Cat's not here today. It's the first time. He's never been late, never been, never missed class. Does anybody know anything about Top Cat? And the students said, Coach, you didn't hear about Top Cat? I said, no, hear what? They said, yeah, there was a holdup up at the gas station up there on 16th Street last night. Top Cat got shot. He's dead. I remember that day, literally, like it was yesterday. I've told this story many times, but my heart still is heavy every time I tell it. I remember that day. I sat down at my desk, and I just said to my students, take out your book and read it. I, I, I couldn't read it that day. Tears began to stream down my cheek. That day I knew that my prize student, Top Cat, was dead. And it seemed like the students in my classroom were just like so used to that that it was like he had, they told me he had a cold or the flu or something. That night when I went home, I quickly turned on the television and said, Channel 2, 5, 7, 9, no story about Top Cat. Next morning, I got the newspapers, the Tribune, the Sun-Times, the Defender, which is a newspaper of the African-American community in Chicago. No story about Top Cat. Do you know I couldn't even go to Top Cat's funeral because I didn't know where it was? Top Cat was one of those nameless and faceless people that become statistics in our world. And nobody seems to care. Last night when I watched the 10 o'clock news, there had already been 14 sh shootings in the city limits of Chicago. Already two were killed. One was a little girl. I'm sure this morning if I got the statistics, there was another dozen or more shootings and probably a couple more people killed. And you know what? We're so callous to it. Nameless, faceless people. Being in Lawndale at the beginning, I began in the Top Cats and the other situations. I realized that there's absolutely, I have no idea how to do what God's <laughs> called me to do. 
I don't have a clue how to do what I felt God in my heart was calling me to do. I didn't know what to do, but I know I needed help. I needed some help to be able to do that. I wasn't sure where to look for help, wasn't sure where that help would come from. I knew I needed somebody to come alongside of me and and to partner with me, but I didn't know where to look. I didn't even know how to do that. But God began to work in my heart and to show me and to guide me. When I went home for Christmas and I visited my parents and I flew back to Chicago. When I came back into Chicago, I caught a taxi, got the cab, took it to my apartment there on 15th and Kedzie. When I pulled up there in front of my apartment building, I noticed that my van did not look the same as when I had gone home for Christmas. Somebody had broken the window out and my spare tire that used to be bolted down in the back back here had been taken and unbolted and the actual tire was in the, sitting in the driver's seat. My window broken out. I quickly went inside, and Mrs. Washington there with my landlady, and as soon as I started to talk, she said, you're supposed to call the police. I said, what happened? She said, you're supposed to call the police. I said, well, what happened? Call the police. I said, okay. I call the police. I go out, and I wait for them. Squad car comes up a few minutes later. I go over to the window and start talking to the police officer, and, uh, and I said, you know, I think, they said, well, you didn't call us. I said, yeah, I did. I'm the one that called you. They said, well, how could it be you? Because they said the guy, I said, this, they said the owner of the van uh, called. I said, yeah, I own that van. They said, well, they said the owner of the van lives in that apartment building there, so it can't be you. I said, no, I live there. They said, you live there? I said, yeah. They said, this is unbelievable. I said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, first of all, we didn't know any white people lived on this block. I mean, that's unbelievable itself. And then secondly, she said, he says, the guy that lives two doors down from you right over here, he was breaking into your van and stealing your tire. And several people on the block called the police to stop him from doing it. Now, this was before the days of 911. You had to tell them everything. You had to tell them your name, your address, your phone number, your social security number, your mother's maiden name to get the police to come out. I'm glad somebody's here with me today. So then they said, but it's unbelievable. We caught him. We responded so quickly. We caught him while he was stealing your tire. Now, of course, with the Chicago police to ever respond that fast, that's a miracle in itself. And they got there. And then they said, but now it's unbelievable because your tire is still there, we noticed. I said, yeah, that's that's crazy, isn't it? They said, yeah, because this happened two days ago. We can't believe your tire's still there. Well, I went inside. The police left. When I get inside... I get Mrs. Washington, now she's willing to talk to me. And I began to talk to Mrs. Washington. I said, yeah, you know, and, and I heard this happened uh, two days ago and my tire's still there. She said, well, of course your tire's still there. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, we set up a neighborhood watch and hour by hour, different people on our block have been watching your van to make sure nobody steals your tire. And then she said, now go out there and get it. We're not watching anymore. Right. <laughs> so I went out and got my tire and I brought it in. Now that night when I went to bed, I did what I do almost every night. I do a little check of my day. I think of the blessings of God and I thank him for them. And then I recall the burdens I still have and I lift those up to him. That night as I was doing that in my little apartment on 15th and Kedzie, God began to work in my heart. 
I began to understand something. I realized that for the first time in my life, I was living amongst a group of people who were living out a dream. It was a part of the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You remember that dream? The I Have a Dream speech 50 years ago this month in Washington, D.C. And a part of Dr. King's dream was that people would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. For the first time in my life, I realized that I was living amongst a group of people who were living that out. That night, God did something to me. He did a role reverse. I came to Lawndale. I came to Farragut to be a teacher. But that night, God did something. He turned my life upside down. He said, son, I didn't bring you here to be a teacher. I brought you here to be a student to be a pupil. And I can honestly tell you, almost 40 years later, without a doubt, I can stand here and say that the people of Lawndale have taught me far more than I've taught them. The first partnership that God began to bring into my life was this partnership with the people of Lawndale themselves. It was the people and partnering with them. If we don't partner with that very people that we hope to bring the good news of Jesus Christ in, we don't have a chance of being successful. And the partners came along and the people of Lawndale. It was the kids of Lawndale that had the idea to start a church. I'm not the founder of the church. The kids of Lawndale, our community, the Bible study that Ann and I had, that's who started the church. And the dream We believe that the people with the problem have the best solutions to solve the problem. Not somebody from outside. And one of our core values at Lawndale now is to listen to the people of our community. And every ministry that we've started, from the health center, our development corporation, our housing, our legal center, our HOPA, every ministry that we've started in Lawndale has been the idea of someone in our community and the people of our neighborhood. So the first partnership that we got in the gospel of Jesus Christ was the very people who live in our community. God brought a beautiful woman into my life. 1977, I got married. I married Ann. And I went on a honeymoon. And then we came back from our honeymoon. We slept in our apartment there first night. We went up, got my, picked up my in-laws who had come into town, picked them up at the airport, went to church, came back. When we got back to my apartment, our apartment had been broken into. The front door had been kicked in, and everything of value we had was stolen. My father-in-law had never been there. It was not a pretty scene. We finally got my in-laws bedded down. Ann and I are sleeping on the floor in the back room. Everybody had told me, don't bring a woman to live with you in Lawndale. It won't be right. God wouldn't want black people, white people, Christian people, non-Christian. Everybody's advice was, don't do this. It's crazy enough that you've done it, but don't bring a woman to live here with you. So that night, I interpreted my house being broken into the very first night that I was married is a sign from God that I ought to move and I shouldn't have done what I did and God was protecting me from the future. So that night we got my in-laws better down. Ann and I are in the back room and we're there praying and talking. And I said, honey, I want you to know I think I made a mistake. And I'm sure today our house getting broken into was a sign from God that we should not do here. We need to move. We need to leave. I'll never forget my wife, Ann. 
She said to me that night, she looked me dead in the eye, I'm crying. She said, honey, I love you and I want to live here. And that night joined the partnership, our first week of marriage, and partnered with me as my lifelong partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to read you what I, when I wrote Real Hope, I mean, uh, Who Is My Neighbor? I dedicated this book to my, to my wife. This, Who Is My Neighbor, is the book that really tells the philosophy of our ministry. And let me tell you, I, I have to read it because I, I, I thought about this. This is what I said. I dedicate this book to my wonderful wife, Anne. We have partnered together at this time over 33 years. Anne and I share life together. We do ministry friends, and family as one. She is exceedingly abundantly beyond what I ever hoped for or dreamed of in a wife. I shudder to think where I would be without her. Anne is the love of my life, my best friend, and the collaborator of my soul. I wouldn't be here today if Anne hadn't said, let's stay. Now, if Anne was here in all fairness, here's what she would say. She would say, yeah, you gave me that chance that time, but you've never given me it again. And I said, well, you know, you got one, that's it. Well, now, what happens next? So now I've got a partner, I've got the community, then we've got a partner, which is my wife and my life mate, and we've been married now for 37 years, and we thank God for that, and then... We knew we needed other partners, and one day I got a phone call from a man by the name of Ed Rose. He was the head of the missions committee here at Christ Church of Oakbrook. He says, I want to come in and see you and see what you're doing. Now, you need to know, in 1982, we had a storefront church. The amount of people that came to church was about half of the choir, all right? I mean, it was, we were podunk, we were small, we were silly, and we had no clue what we were doing. I still hadn't learned. I still don't know what I'm doing, but anyway, that's another story. So... Ed Rose comes and sees it, but God touched his heart. He comes back and talks to Dr. DeCryder. And pretty soon, Christ Church of Oakbrook come alongside of us. And since 1983, over 30 years, Christ Church of Oakbrook and Lawndale Community Church have been partners in the gospel and partnering with taking the good news of Jesus Christ, not only in Lawndale, but all over the world. We have been partners together. And the partnership is amazing. If I start to talk about people, I know I'm going to leave people out. There are so many people, many of you in this room, who've done something to make a difference in Lawndale, come alongside some of our people, worked in our community, helped out, read x-rays at our, at, our, at our medical clinic. I mean, it's amazing what God has done. The Beret family and so many of you have just walked alongside of us in ways that you just would not even believe. But it was in a way that made a difference. Dr. DeCryder said this. I, I, I thank Christ Church of Oakbrook for all you've done for us. Now, Dr. DeCryder, in a conversation I had with him, he said this. Dr. DeCryder told me recently that I talk too much about how greatly we appreciate the people of Christ Church of Oakbrook. Here's what he said. He said, you're the ones who have changed our lives. He said, it's your people who have enriched the people of Christ Church of Oakbrook. You see, Dr. DeCryder understood that it was a partnership. Now, we're talking about partnerships in the gospel today. The, a partnership implies that both people bring something of value to the table. 
It's not a partnership if one group gives everything and the other group doesn't give anything back. If you don't both bring something to the table, it's not a partnership, it's charity. But we have not been a charity of Christ Church of Oak Brook. We have been a partner in the gospel of Christ Church of Oak Brook. That's what we're talking about today. And so Dr. DeCryder understood that and understood that we brought something to you as you brought something to us, and then God began to make a difference. Now, you know what was also amazing is that when Dan Meyer became the pastor here, you would think that that partnership probably would dissipate because Dr. DeCryder was so involved in that. But because of you, 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 made, doc, you made Dr. Meyer become a part of it. And it was amazing to see that. And in this book, Linking Arms and Linking Lives, when there's a talking about a partnership between a suburban church and an urban church, the whole chapter is about our relate. Many of your names are mentioned in this book because it was the partnership of Christ Church of Oakbrook and Lawndale Community Church that has been an example to the world. Now, here's what Dan Meyer said. Dan Meyer, Decryder's successor in 1997, concurs and adds this to Dr. Decryder's statement. Lawndale Community Church is way ahead of our church in understanding and in fleshing a truly holistic approach to mission. As we seek to be an influence on the neighborhoods around our church building, we look to Lawndale Community Church as a model and a teacher from which we can learn. They are showing us what it means to exegete your neighborhood and to pursue a distinctly Christian approach to relationship building and community development, which gains a hearing for the gospel and expands the kingdom of God as a spiritual, social, and physical levels. You see, this partnership has continued under the leadership of Dan Meyer. Dan's been to Lawndale many times, as many of you have. The flowers that we have there are planted with a team of Lawndale and... and, and, uh, uh, Christ Church of Oakbrook people, every spring plant flowers. And when we do something, we always work together. We don't want you to come and do something for us. We want you to come and do something with us. That's partnership. That's what we're talking about. When George w., George w. Bush was president, I got a call from the White House. And the White House said, we want to talk, President Bush has given a speech and he wants to talk about an urban and suburban church partnership. And uh, we, we understand you have a partnership. And they mentioned the name of another church in the Chicago area. And we want to talk a little bit about uh, your partnership. And he wants to make a statement about it. And so I began to talk to them at the White House for a while. And then after a little while, uh, I, be, I asked them a question. I said, let me ask you something. Do you want to talk about the partnership that Lawndale Community Church has with this ch- particular church, or do you want to talk about what we think is true partnership? The White House said, well, we want to talk about true partnership. I said, well, it's not that church then. It's a good church. We have a little something going on with them. But let me tell you about our real, truly partner church. It's called Christ Church of Oakbrook. And then I began to tell them stories. And as I told them all the stories, they said, yeah, that's what we want. And so George Bush, President Bush, gave a speech in Memphis, Tennessee a few years ago. And when he gave that speech, he highlighted the relationship that you and us have together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've been working on that. Now, one of the things that, the, that, that we think about is, is Philemon. And Paul wrote this letter to Philemon. And the, the passage is very I always thank God. My God, as I remember you in my prayers. You know what? We pray for you at Christ Church of Oak Brook. 
When Dan got sick a few couple years ago, our church was in prayer for Dan. We prayed for all of you. We prayed for the partnership that we have. So every time we pray, we remember you and we thank God for you, just as Paul said to Philemon. Because I hear about your love for all of his people and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your love for people and your love of Jesus. That's what we thank God for you about. And I pray, Paul says, that that your partnership with us And we pray for our partnership and your understanding of every good thing as we share in the sake of Jesus Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brothers and sisters, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. We thank God for Christ Church of Oak Brook. Now, one of the things that we have to do as partners then is figure out how to do this together. Now, early in Lawndale, we clearly knew nothing. We had no idea how to do what we were talking about doing. And so one of the things that we discovered early on at Lawndale Community Church is we discovered the great commandment of Scripture. Matthew 22, 34 and following. Jesus has asked the question, what's the greatest commandment of all of Scripture? And Jesus says, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Matthew 22, Mark chapter 12. And so what we see then is the greatest commandment is to love God with everything we have and then to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now I'm thankful for Luke because Luke adds a little something different to this. Luke chapter 10 is basically the same story, but it's got a little different twist. This time the expert in the law comes up and says, hey, what must I do to have eternal life? In other words, he's saying, what must I do to live the Christian life? Jesus said, I think you know the answer. What do you think? And the expert of the law says, well, I think that I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as I love myself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, the important part of it is this next question. It says there that the expert in the law says to Jesus, and it says in the text, you look it up, Luke 10, wishing to justify himself, which means he thought he was doing it. He thought he was loving his neighbor. Wishing to justify himself, he says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? That's a question that we need to ponder for a few moments in our conclusion today. Who is my neighbor? Now, the world's definition and the American Western definition of neighbor is very simple. My neighbor is somebody that lives in close proximity to me. My neighbor is somebody that lives on my block next door to me. You look it up in the definition in the dictionary, and that's what it's going to say. Your neighbor is somebody that's close to you, lives on your cul-de-sac, lives in your community, lives in your town. That's our neighbor. But Jesus' definition is very different than that. Jesus then doesn't give him an answer. Instead, he gives him a parable. Jesus often spoke in parables. And he tells him the parable, you know it well, called the Good Samaritan. We often refer to it as that. There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and some people beat him up. They mugged him. They beat him. He was bloody. He was unconscious. It says he was half dead in the text. And then there were two people coming by. There was a priest. I mean, the pastor. John, Dan, Wayne, Daryl coming by. And you, you think, wow, he's going to stop. You know what? He passed by on the other side. And then there was the deacons and the elders, the priests and the Levi. The Levi passed by on the other side. And then there was a Samaritan that came. And the Samaritan stopped 
bandaged up his wounds with oil and wine, put him on his donkey, the text says, and then took him to an inn, spent the whole night with him in the inn. And the next morning got up and gave the innkeeper some money and said, if this isn't enough, I'll be back through, and when I come, I'll pay you the more money. And then Jesus said, who acted like the man on the side of the road was your neighbor? And the expert in the law says, the one, the Samaritan, the one that stopped. Jesus said, that's right. Now go and do likewise. That text is very, very important. I wish I had time today to talk more about it, but I want to get, I have studied this text for over 25 years, asking one simple question. Who is the man beaten up on the side of the road? Because that's my neighbor, and that's who I'm called to stop and help and love. That's who I'm called to love. Who's that man beaten up on the side of the road? So let me, I, I've, got four, I've got over 40 characteristics of the man beaten up on the side of the road. We don't have time for all 40 today, and we probably don't even have time for half of them, but I'm going to give you a few, all right? But uh, I'm only going to give you, don't worry. I know some of you are already, I'm already over time, and you're ready to go home, and your cooking is there. But you know what? This is, we're, this is a Lawndale experience. We don't stop on time, all right? So, but I'm going I'm to finish up here, all right? Help me out now. Help me now. You're supposed to say, take your time, coach. <laughs> All right. I'm wasting time. That's what my wife would say. You're wasting time talking about it. Oh, yeah, but she's right. She ain't here, so I'm okay. Now, all right. Who is the man beaten up? I'm only going to give you probably three, so don't, don't get too nervous. Who's the man beaten up on the side of the road? Well, clearly, you don't even have to think. The man beaten up on the side of the road is somebody that needed help. He's beaten up. The text says he's half dead. We know he's bleeding because he had to bandage his wounds. Who's my neighbor? My neighbor is somebody I come across who needs help. Who do you know that needs help? The Jesus definition says that is our neighbor. So our antennas ought to go out and we ought to be looking as we walk through life. Who are people that come in front of us that need help? That's who we're called to love. Whether they live next door to us or they live halfway around the world, who do you know that needs help? That's our neighbor. The second one that I would give you today is that the man beaten up on the side of the road was somebody that nobody wanted to help. You know, there's people like that. There are some people you just don't want to help. The priest passed by. He didn't want to help. The Levite passed by. He didn't want to help. People didn't want to help. There's a lot of people in our world, in our society, that nobody wants to help. We don't want to help people often. We don't want mentally ill, the people who struggle with mental illness, oftentimes we don't want to help them because maybe they're, 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 not, they're not exactly socially all intact and everything going well, and so we, we run from people. Sometimes we run from people who have a physical handicap. Maybe they're, they're walking or limping or in a wheelchair or they have their legs cut off or whatever it would be. There's a lot of people we don't want to help, and we don't want to help people who can't help themselves, who aren't making it. My neighbor is somebody that the rest of the world says, I'm not going to help them. We got a lot of those people out there. They're the nameless and faceless peoples like the top cats of the world. And then lastly, my neighbor, the man beaten up on the side of the road, scholars are in agreement. The man beaten up on the side of the road was Jewish. Who was it that stopped? The Jewish people didn't stop. It was the Samaritan. My neighbor, somebody of a different race. 
Now, we live in segregated communities, not just racially, but we live in segregated communities by education. Most of the people on your block have the same education level you have. Most of the people on your block are of the same race that you are. Most of the people on your block have the same economic status. You know, you know I've never yet seen a $5 million house built next to a $20,000 house. We live in segregated economic communities. We've got to talk, be honest about this. And so now the question is, you know, in our segregated communities, the man beaten up on the side of the road is Jewish, a Samaritan who was a mixed-race person, actually worshipped the wrong God, had it all worship all mixed up. So who is, my neighbor is somebody of a different race. Now we have an African-American president of our country right now. And I hear people saying, oh, racism is no longer a problem. I want to present to you today, propose, that that's certainly not true from my experience. As a matter of fact, I think probably racism in America is worse today than it was 40 years ago when I started. It's more subtle, it looks differently, and things just aren't the same. I mean, take the Trayvon Martin case. I mean, I know everybody's exploding about that, but you know what? I don't, what I don't really hear people talking about when they talk about Trayvon Martin is the tragedy that a teenage boy who went to the store and came home lost his life that night. I mean, that's the tragedy of the story. No matter what took place. We have. We had a war on drugs in America. I suppose it's still going on. But you know what? The, we all know the average drug user in America is a white male college graduate. That's who uses most of the drugs in our country. Only 14% of drug dealers are African American. But... of all arrests and convictions of drug dealing are African-American males. The war on drugs was not a war on drugs. The war on drugs was a war on African-American men in our country today. Now, if you don't believe me, read the book, The New Jim Crow. Michelle Alexander lays it out clearly. We have put over a million and a half African-American men in prison because they were the easy one on the block to pick up and put in jail. We have a problem with race in our country. And so when we think about partnership, I invite you at Christ Church of Oakbrook to come alongside us at Lawndale Community Church and to come alongside and to continue to partner with us and partner in ways that will make a difference in the world and the society that we live in. That's our, that's our hope, that's our prayer. The ver- another book called Divided by Faith says some of the very practices that we do as churches today separates us as races. We've got to do better at this. Let me tell you something. Let me let you know a little secret. Heaven ain't going to be majority white. It won't be because there's more people of color in the world and heaven will be far more people of color than white folk. We might as well learn to get along on earth because we're going to have to be together in heaven. Let's be the body of Christ as we gather together. Hey, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love. Help us to partner together. In your name, Jesus, amen.